Hear this, verse 4. You who trample the needy to do away with the humble of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over so we can sell grain? And the Sabbath, that we may open the wheat market to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger, and to cheat with dishonest scales, so as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals, and that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. What are they saying? When will the new moon be over? How soon is Shabbat going to end? How long is this church service going to go on anyway? (laughs) Outward observances. External religion are, in my opinion, worse than no religion at all. Jesus says you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were at least one or the other. I wish you were either hot passionate for me or cold opposed to me but since you're walking right up the middle and you're laissez-faire lukewarm mentality I'm going to spit you out of my mouth I believe it's biblical to say that religion that is external is worse than no religion at all better not to have any of it than to play the game because the game doesn't work the one use of the word religion in the New Testament one time it's used and James frames it this way. James 1.27, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That's religion. Not this outward show. Not holding out to the end of Shabbat. Not being sure you show up in your best robes for the new moon festival. Not doing the religious thing, not showing up at church on Sunday, but living like the world the rest of the week. That's external religion, and God would have none of it. Verse 7, the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, indeed, I will never forget any of their deeds. Because of this, will not the land quake, and everyone who dwells in it mourn? Indeed, all of it will rise up like the Nile, and will be tossed about and subside like the Nile of Egypt which the Nile does, annually goes into flood stage. Verse 9, It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. And then I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into lamentation and I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness on every head. <laughs> and I will make it a, like a time of mourning for an only son and at the end of it, It will be like a bitter day. And I think Amos is right here slipping into talking about the day of the Lord. I think maybe we're now getting preview, jumping beyond the prophecy of the destruction of Israel alone. Why do you think that? The geographical impact? That the land's going to rise and it's going to subside? You may say, well, that's just a metaphor for armies coming in and maybe... There's also a celestial impact. The sun's going to go dark in the middle of the day. Interesting things that are part of this. And, by the way, he uses a certain phrase, a very specific prophetic phrase. He says it will be a time of mourning for an only son. Where have we heard that before? In 520 B.C., long after Israel's fall, 70 years after Judah's fall, the Lord spoke through the prophet Zechariah and said, 
I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn that Zechariah 12.10 and all of Zechariah 12 speaks of the second coming of Jesus. Written after the fall of both the northern and southern kingdoms. So that prophecy is not about what was about to happen when Amos was prophesying. And it's the mourning over a son. Mourning over an only son. The only son of God, Jesus Christ. And I believe that is what is in play here. Verse 11. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea, or shining sea, as the case may be, from north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Now carefully note this. It's not a famine of the word. It is a famine for hearing the words of God. And that's a different thing. The emptiness is not in the words. It's not that the word's not being produced, that the word's not available, that they can't get the word. It's that they can't hear the word. They won't hear the word. The emptiness is in the heart of the listener. And not in the words of God. Sunday was so critical to me personally. The teaching was. I said this, I think, second hour. I know I went home to Cheryl and said it again. I feel like I need to reteach this whole thing. Because I'm just now starting to pick up what I was putting down. You know that happens to me all the time? Like I'll, I'll preach something, I'll go home, and it'll hit me what I preached. <laughs> and I'll start to think about that and realize and be convicted by it and moved by it. And like, Rick, you're weird. I know. I have to live here. <laughs> and Sunday was that way for me. Thinking about hearing God and and, and what that truly means and the depth of that and the importance and the significance in these last days of really hearing Him. We will not be intercessors if we don't hear the Lord. How can you pray what the Lord is telling you to pray if you don't hear what the Lord is saying in the first place? He's given us His Word that we may learn to hear Him. And the Word became flesh that we might learn what His voice sounds like. And 1 Corinthians 2.16, again I repeat, says we have the mind of Christ that we may hear Him at a depth, at a level spiritually, that I think is far greater than audible hearing. The goal here, by the way, in hearing God is not hearing audibly. That's not the goal. That's a step on the way. The goal is hearing Him in your spirit. The goal is knowing It's the wisdom and understanding, the counsel and strength, the knowledge and the fear of the Lord that Isaiah talked about, Isaiah chapter 11, that gets in us. And we begin to know the will of the Lord. And we can always go back to what we've heard in the Word. We can always go back to what we've heard in Jesus, the person of Jesus Christ. But it's knowing. And God has called us to hear. And there is a supernatural truth when it comes to hearing the Word of God, and it's this, the more you listen, the more clear your hearing will be. The more time you devote to simply listening to what the Lord Lord has to say, the more you will hear Him. 
On the other hand, the less you listen, the less you'll be able to hear. If you don't use it, you will lose it. And that's why when our lives get cluttered and busy and so many things going on, we find it more difficult to hear the Lord than when we are giving Him time and substance in our lives. You might say, well, but it says they'll go to and fro seeking it. They're looking for it. Yeah, and people are today. How many conferences do we need to have? How many conventions and seminars, Christian or otherwise, are constantly popping up, claiming to disclose God's thoughts? You don't have to go to a conference to hear the Lord. You don't have to go to a seminar to learn to hear God. you just got to start praying. You need to give yourself some time in the Word. And time spent with the Lord in the Word and with the Lord in prayer, you will learn to hear. We need to be like the church at Thessalonica. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, When you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Man, that's, that's how you hear. You receive His Word as it comes. Amos chapter 8, verse 13, continuing on, In that day the beautiful virgins and the young men will faint from thirst. As for those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, who say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they will fall and not rise again. You see, all Dan could serve up was a golden heifer. All Beersheba could offer was a golden heritage. And neither is sufficient. Brace yourselves. The final vision of Amos. A determined judge. Number five, a determined judge. Chapter 9, verse 1, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and He said, Smite the capitals so that the thresholds will shake and break them on the heads of them all. And then I will slay the rest of them with the sword, and they will not have a fugitive who will flee or a refugee who will escape. Though they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide on the summit of Carmel, I will search them out and take them from there. And though they conceal themselves from my sight on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it will bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword that it slay them, and I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. The words of a determined judge. And there's something in this determined judgment that the laissez-faire mindset does not understand, and it's very simply this. You can run, but you cannot hide. You cannot get away from the Lord. The words he's speaking here, dang. Psalm 139, verse 7. A beautiful psalm, a wonderful psalm, and it's one we like to sing and read when we want to feel the embrace of God. David writes, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. But my friends, what he's saying is even in death there is no escaping judgment. There's no getting away from dealing with God. The atheist says, I just won't believe. You're still going to have to deal with Him. 
The agnostic says, I'm not sure. You're still going to have to deal with him. The laissez-faire says, I won't think about it. You're still going to have to deal with him. Whatever your position, whatever your perspective, whoever you are in this world, you will have to deal with the Lord. Hebrews 4.13, there's no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. And that's everybody. And Jesus even said, John 5.28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. In this last and most profoundly consuming prophecy of Amos, what he's saying is no one can escape the judgment of God. Verse 5. The Lord God of hosts, the one who touches the land so that it melts, And all those who dwell in it mourn. And all of it rises up like the Nile and subsides like the Nile of Egypt. The one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens, who has founded, note this, his vaulted dome over the earth, which is universally accurate, okay, celestially accurate in the way the universe is bent and expands. It just, it it fits. Science is just now figuring this out. He who calls For the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth, that would be the Lord of the flood. The Lord is His name. Now there are two problems with this that i got to clarify before we can go any further. Problem number one is back in verse 1 of chapter 9. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. God's in a temple. And my friends, this is by far the greatest vision of Amos's prophetic life. This is the one more than anything he has seen or heard before. This is huge. Amos joins the ranks of Isaiah, who saw the Lord seated on His throne, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. He joins the ranks of Ezekiel, who had that magnificent, glorious, expansive heavenly vision in Ezekiel chapter 1 and again in Ezekiel chapter 10. He joins the ranks of a lesser known prophet, a prophet named Micaiah, 1 Kings 22.19, who also saw the Lord sitting on His throne. And now Amos sees the Lord standing beside the altar, commanding the breaking of the capitals and the shaking of the thresholds. Here's the problem. What temple is this? A lot of commentators jump the gun, I think, and assume it's the altar of Jeroboam in Bethel. Well, it's the prophecies for Israel, right? So the altar's got, it's got to be that altar, and he sees God standing by that altar. I don't think so. I'm going to give you my opinion on this. You can work it out. It's not going to make or break your salvation. But I wonder what would the Lord be doing inside a false temple anyway? And weren't there multiple pagan altars in Bethel? We know there were. So which one would it be if it's an altar in Bethel? The altar to the golden calf? Well, then why not the golden calf up in Dan? There are inherent problems with thinking that God is standing beside the altar of Jeroboam. And more so, where is it that the Word of God, at least at that time, where did the Word of God originate from? Go all the way back to Amos chapter 1. Verse 2, The Lord roars from... Zion, Zion, Jerusalem. 
From Jerusalem he utters his voice, and the shepherds pasture grounds mourn, and the summit of Carmel dries up. This is the lion's roar. And by the way, another reason that I believe that God is seen at the altar of the Jerusalem temple is because the prophecy is now including Judah and not just Israel. And we've been getting hints of this all the way through the prophet Amos back in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept His statutes. Their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send fire upon Judah, and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. Skip on to Amos chapter 6. Verse 1, the very first line of the evening tonight, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. So what's the point? point is, the people were divided into two kingdoms. But the Lord only always saw one people. He still viewed them as one. He still sees them. Yeah, there's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and the Lord chooses to deal with them, sending prophets to both and dealing with both separately, but He sees them all as His one people. The whole idea of the lost ten northern tribes of Israel is a farce because God knows where all of His people are. He wasn't just supportive of Judah and Benjamin, but all twelve tribes. The only legitimate temple of God stood in Jerusalem. The only temple that God would recognize and the only altar that God would stand by as legitimate for all 12 tribes of Israel was the altar in Jerusalem. I believe we're in the Jerusalem temple here. That's the vision that Amos gets. But there's another problem here. Maybe this made you a little uncomfortable. I know it made Spencer uncomfortable. It's the last line of verse 4. It's just one of these things I would get an email from you about. So I thought I'd go ahead and tell you now. I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. Can a God who is perfect good do evil? That doesn't seem to square with my theology. Listen. Can a God who is perfect good do evil? Let me ask the question this way. Can a God who is perfect good be evil? No. Can He do evil? Listen. Yes. Depending on, of course, how you define evil. This is not malicious intent. This is not evil intent. This is not wickedness that God is going to do. But it is an evil outcome of the evil actions of the people. And God does it. Remember, Amos already told us, taught us, that God causes calamity when it serves His greater good, when it serves His higher, more perfect purposes. And so, when the Lord Himself says this, and and I guess the easiest answer is, God says, I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good, then I guess He can set His eyes against them for evil. Because He said so. Yeah, but what's the word mean in the Hebrew? The Hebrew word is ra, and it means evil. Or, it also means harm. And the Lord has set Himself now against His people Israel for what would be perceived. Can you perceive an invasion, a brutal invasion of Assyria as anything other than evil? How awful. Think about the people remembering their brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers with those fish hooks in their jaws as they're being dragged off. That's evil. 
That's the evil of man. Man's evil intent. Satan's malicious evil intent. But God's got a greater good that He's working out here. It all has to do, it all goes back to the original blessings and cursings in the covenant. Deuteronomy 28.15, the Lord said, and this was hundreds of years prior, through Moses, it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all His commandments and His statutes with which I charge you today that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And is not a curse from our perspective evil? It's a bad thing. But from God's perspective, it's working a greater will. He says in Deuteronomy uh, 28.63, It shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you. And you will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. And Moses was speaking prophecy way back then. Kyle says the people of the Lord remain under all circumstances the object of special attention. They are more richly blessed than the whole world, but they are also more severely punished. And that's what the Lord is referring to. That's what He's doing. Verse 7. Are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me, O sons of Israel? declares the Lord. Have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaptor? Kaptor was an, an island, a European island. They came from Crete. Okay, So they're not Arabic. We've been over that. Just thought I'd point that out. Have I not brought the Philistines from Kaptor and the Aramaeans from Kerr? What's the point, Lord? <laughs> so much for divine election. I brought you out of Egypt as my chosen people. But I brought the Philistines over too. And ships. And I brought the Arameans from Christ. I did all this. Israel, you think you're so special because you're my chosen people. But what the Lord is saying here is Israel is no different than any nation. Because they've chosen to be like the nations. But watch this. Verse 8. Behold... The eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Nevertheless, and this is the most beautiful nevertheless in the book of Amos. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I am commanding and I will shake the house of Israel among all nations as grain is shaken in a sieve but not a kernel will fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say the calamity will not overtake or confront us. Gang, the kingdoms will fall. The house will stand. The chaff will be shaken out. The kernels will remain. And notice what the Lord says here. First in verse 8, He says the house of Jacob. Well, who's the house of Jacob? Well, Jacob had 12 sons. So the house of Jacob is all 12 of the tribes of Israel. It's the northern and the southern kingdom. And note then he says in verse 9, to underscore this, he says, I will shake the house of Israel. The house of Jacob, the house of Israel, he's using both names for the man to describe the man's family, which is all of the Jewish people. And their house will stand. 
they're going to survive. I am going to keep some kernels in the sieve. I'm going to maintain this house. And not just southern Judah. I'm going to maintain all of Israel. Verse 11. In that day, three beautiful words, in that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. In that day is a favorite phrase of every prophet from Isaiah to Malachi. In that day, speaking, my friends, of the millennial kingdom, I told David yesterday, (laughs) I said, uh, I don't know why he asked this. He asks weird questions sometimes. You know, he's six. What do you expect? And he goes, Dad, is this the second world? I'm like, you've been playing video games with your brother. What's up there? Is this this a second world? I said, what do you mean a second world? He says, was there a world before this? I said, well... Well, no, the Lord created this world and and the universe. And I said, there's going to be another world. The millennial reign of of Jesus. He's going to come and and rule and reign for a thousand years. And David goes, it's going to reign for a thousand years? (laughs) I'll tell you more when you're older. I'll explain. We'll get there. In that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David. The fallen booth. The fallen sukkah. Sukkot, tabernacle. I'm going to raise up the tabernacle of David and it speaks of the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. It speaks of the rebuilt kingdom of David. And by the way, this cannot, this does not speak about the temple of the exiles. And it doesn't speak about Herod's retrofit, his restoration of the temple leading up to the days of Jesus. This is, this fallen booth of David speaks only, can only be the millennial temple. By the way, built by Jesus himself. He's the contractor. He's the architect. He's the builder. He does it all. Zechariah 6.13 It is he who will build the temple of the Lord. He will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. He will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. That is the office of priest and king. Jesus will rule and reign, my son David, for a thousand years as he raises up the fallen booth of David. And note this, the kingdom is far bigger even than the entire house of Jacob. Verse 12, I'm going to rebuild it as in days of old, he says, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations, the word in the Hebrew, goyim, all the Gentiles who are called by my name declares the Lord God who does this. Now, quickly, i got to run over to Acts 15. I want to read you something. You don't have to go there, but you're welcome to. Early in the history of the church, what was at first a Jewish sect, Christianity in Jerusalem was a Jewish sect. It was just an offshoot of the Jewish faith. That's the way everybody looked at it. Even the Jewish Christians themselves saw it as the fulfillment of their Judaism, which it was. And in many ways, still is. The fulfillment of all that God intended for Israel through Jesus Christ, the perfect Jew. And so they're all there, and they're all Jews. They're Christians, but they're Jewish. But all of a sudden, these Gentiles start to filter in. Peter goes off and has this experience, this encounter with this guy named Cornelius, a Gentile. And he gets baptized in the Holy Spirit. What's going on there, Lord? And all this information's coming in. What do we do with this? And so they had a council, a council there in Jerusalem. 
Chapter 15 of the book of Acts, verse 12, all the people kept silent. They were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Shimon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, quote, After these things I will return. I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, James continues, it's my judgment that we not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. James quotes Amos. That quote is directly out of Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. You can go back there that we just read. The slight variation in the way it's read in the New Testament versus the Old Testament is because the New Testament version is from the Septuagint. I hope you're getting used to the Septuagint. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. So you have the Hebrew Scriptures translated into Greek, translated into English, and so we get a slightly different take on it. But the meaning is exactly the same if you compare the two. Acts 15, quoted by James, of Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. And James and the apostles recognize the truth. What Amos is talking about is the gospel of Jesus Christ that will go out to the Gentiles. That not only Israel will have a part in this glorious millennial kingdom, but the Gentiles would be drawn in as well. The coming kingdom is all-inclusive for any and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Verse 13, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. The land is going to be so fruitfully abundant that the plowman, who normally begins plowing in October, is going to be standing around waiting for the reaper who should have been done back in May. You understand, the reaper's still reaping. The plowman's like, i got a plant. The reaper's going, yeah, but there's so much fruit here, I can't get it out all, all at once. Just give me a minute. So he's getting all the fruit and collecting it. The plowman's going, but I want to plow. But the, the land is so fruitful, it's just nonstop. It's just amazing. And get this, there's going to be a lot of work to do in the kingdom. If you thought you were going to have a laissez-faire attitude then, if you thought you were going to kick back on your ivory couch, ain't going to happen. We're going to be busy at work. There are things to do. It will be a blessed and a joyful labor. But there will be work in the millennial kingdom. And Spurgeon said this, one sign of true revival. Someone mentioned revival when we were praying earlier tonight. You want to know what a sign of true revival is? He says, indeed, an essential part of it is the increased activity of God's laborers. You know a revival is taking place when God's people are getting busy bringing the gospel. When God's people are at work serving in the church. When God's people are doing the work of the kingdom. In this case, harvest time. And harvest time appears to be year-round as the people are working. In Psalm 110, verse 3, Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Wow. Mountains dripping sweet wine. It says all the hills will be dissolved. What's up with that? Well, 
The word for dissolve there, it's a cool word in the Hebrew, it's moog. Moog. It means to melt or to flow. To flow. That makes sense. It's a beautiful word picture. The hills will be flowing. The hills will be melting, dissolving. He's reiterating what we read recently. Try to say that three times fast. What we saw recently in Joel's prophecy, Joel 4.18, In that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine, the hills will flow with milk, all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Of course the hills will be dissolved. He says just everything's going to be in flow. Best part is it's all going to be in the flow of the Spirit. Jesus is going to be there. The fruit's going to be beautiful. The milk's flowing. The water's flowing. It's all amazing. Verse 14. Also, I will restore the captivity, or literally the fortunes, of my people Israel. And they will rebuild the ruined cities and live. The translators added live in them, but I like to say live. They're finally going to live. And they will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land. And note this, they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them. God is obviously speaking of a time that has never occurred. Because when the exiles came back from Judah, they lived there for roughly 500 years until in AD 70, they were rooted out from the land again. He's talking about a time that we have never seen. An amazing time that is yet to come. A prophecy unfulfilled. They will not again be rooted out from their land which I have given them, says the Lord your God. This prophecy will be fulfilled. And how do I know? Because the final words of the prophet Amos are, says the Lord your God. Amen? Father, we thank You for the words of Amos and we thank You for the promise of that millennial kingdom, of the fulfillment, Lord, of all of Your blessings on Israel and the Gentile world. Thank You, Lord, for grafting us in. Thank You, Lord, for making us a part of this. And Father, give us the boldness, the boldness in our lives to share that basket of summer fruit and to be, Father, busy about the work of the kingdom, knowing that our Jesus is soon to come. In Jesus' name, Amen.